We are in the book of James. I don't know if you've had a chance to follow along with us yet, but um, we are, this is our fourth discussion, and we're going to do a little bit of overlap this week, starting at verse 22, going to verse 2, chapter 2, 13. And just by way of introduction, James is writing to religious people, people who feel really good about their religion. And so he's being a little bit harsher than maybe Paul is at times in his letters. Uh, Much like Jesus, who Jesus reserved his harshness for Pharisees, right? James is talking to Christians who contend toward their religion over the truth of all of the scripture. And and so he's really opening their eyes to this. Also, James, um, he's the brother of Jesus, grew up with Jesus. And a lot of his language really seems to, to dovetail with how Jesus taught, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. And then also he borrows a lot from the Old Testament. So there's a lot of hints back to the Psalms and the Proverbs and wisdom literature. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful letter. I've really been enjoying going through it with you guys. And, um, I, but I want to, I want to say I've had a few conversations with people who have told me, man, James is hard. I had a conversation with a person recently who's taught through James in Bible study. And he just, his, his sentiment is it just over, it can overwhelm me. And if that's your feeling, I would encourage you to lean in and listen for the gospel because in James, we really do find a beautiful presentation of the gospel. And that's what we love it. Um, What we've been talking about recently, the famous way he starts is, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. And what we've been saying is really that theme permeates the entire letter of James, that we are living in between the already and the not yet. And so we live in trial. I mean, that's, that's the world we live in. You don't have to think very long and hard before you come to places where you're struggling, relationships, struggles with sin patterns, people are against you. Whatever your situation, there are trials all over the place. And we've been saying that though obviously this is dealing with large-scale trials, so much of what I think the hope is of this letter is he's saying the gospel frees you to actually approach the, what you might call the little things. And you approach them in the confidence of scripture and the implanted word. And it's through that process of going into the trials that we actually grow. And so this week we're going to read a passage where James is transitioning and he says, instead of just listening only to the word, become a, a doer of the word. And we mentioned a few weeks ago the, the Greek there is uh, the poetes, which is the root for poetry. It's, it's engage in the art of godly expression. Like there's something glorious about the fact that when Jesus rules and reigns from heaven, where he's fighting back the evils of this planet, of this world, he's using you and I. His primary means are people. And so we are invited into a situation where we get to lovingly step on the neck of evil wherever it reigns in this world. And it's joyful. It's fun. It's dangerous. But that's what we get to do. So we're going to read about that this morning. But in order to do that, we have to actually come with all of ourselves to this letter. So look with me, verse 22 on. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer... He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. 
But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religious religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and a fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you, stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme and the honorable name of which, by which we are called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are the, to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we cannot stand under the weight of the law. It reveals the truth, which is this, that we are poor. We have nothing good apart from you. So we praise you that you saw fit to come visit us in our affliction and rescue us. And by planting your spirit in us, Lord, we now have a true glory, a glory which is yours. So teach us, Lord, to live out of that reality, out of the reality of our new identity in you, Christ. Amen. I was having a conversation with one of my children yesterday, and the word popularity came up. And every time I think of that word, I have this weird response of both, oh, yeah, like, I hate that, right? I mean, don't we just kind of hate that concept? But then it also is a very familiar concept. I remember junior high. I remember popularity. There's this weird span of, of life where it's sort of normal to go around classifying people. You're in this camp, and, and you're in that camp. And I would name camps from my generation, but they don't work any like jocks and preps. I don't know. There's new ones. There's like all sorts of them. And, and so there's this weird ability, almost freedom with the young people to just classify each other in junior high. That's the, that's the age group I'm targeting in my mind. And then popularity on top of that, an overlay is like, there's just this sense. I was talking with my child and, and, and the question was like, how do we know that someone's popular? And, and the answer is you just do. It's just, everyone just kind of gets it, especially the person who it is, you know. Popularity. Raise your hand if you were popular in high school. No, don't do it. Don't do it. I was not. I just want you to know. Go figure. 
Um, James is talking about partiality. And, and what you find is we really never leave junior high. We really never grow up. We, we find ourselves as a, as a race constantly evaluating ourselves and others. And, and, and the question that we are asking over and over and that you find James talking about is this question of, are, are you fitting in? Are you, are you acceptable? And so partiality, as, we, or as we're going to dig into it, is this process by which we measure people by whom we want to be defined. We want them to like us, and we want to like them. And then to do that, we have to necessarily not like other people. And, and what we find is that it, it, it's completely the opposite of the gospel, right? We're using our junior high methodologies even in the Christian church, how we fit in, how we even hold our theology, what church we go to, what groups we belong to, whether we fit in or not fit in. We just take these worldly concepts and they bleed right in to our very existence. And that's what James is dealing with. He's talking to a group of people who would say, we have pure religion. That's why he uses that word, by the way. It's not a word that most of the New Testament writers use very often. It's almost a negative word, even in the Bible at times. But somehow his audience would lean in and say, we're religion, we're religious. Yet what he's going to tell us and what we're going to find is this. We have been liberated. We have been set free from that prison of junior high. Like how many, when you all graduated, were you not just like, I'm out? How many, when you go to college, right, it's like, I'm free. Why would we go back? That's what the gospel has freed us to do. We have been set free from this evaluative life of, of measurement. We're defined by Christ. We've been set free by the law of liberty. And now we are to go into this life we live freeing other people. That's what we're going to talk about. Three things we're going to look at. The first is going to be this. When you're liberated, you seek a true solution to the problem. Point number one. When you're liberated, we, you're going to seek true solution to the problem. Now, where am I getting the word liberated for this outline? Uh, in, in verses 22 to 25, he ends by saying, look at the law of liberty. And at the end of our passage, in verse 12 of chapter 2, he says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So, so for James, he's saying there is this law of liberty. What does that mean? Well, it means you've been set free because of what Christ has done. When you think about the law, you go all the way back to the Old Testament and, the, and to Sinai and the Ten Commandments. They were given to a people group who had been set free already. God actually begins by saying, you are my people. I'm your God. You will be my people. So the freedom had come, and the law even had in it a sacrificial system. The whole thing is built on being set free to become who you're meant to be. And we'll talk more about that as we go. But the law of liberty frees us to actually not get caught up in the wrong solutions. What do I mean? Well, uh, when you look at this passage starting in verse 26, and where we got the title... James says, if anyone thinks he's religious, he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, his religion is worthless. So now he's going to tell us what true religion is. Pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows. That concept goes all the way back to Exodus. We know what orphans and widows mean. 
especially in the ancient world, um, both orphans, if you did not have the livelihood of, of a man, a father, a husband, often you would be destitute. And so the, the church from its earliest inception at Sinai had a system to take care of orphans and widows. God says he identifies over and over in the Psalms and in later prophets, he's the, he's the God of the fatherless and God of the widow. That's, that's, that's in his nature. What's interesting, though, is James is writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. That's his way of saying the church, the new spiritual Israel, all, the, all that are the modern, the present-day church. All of those churches would have had a program set up. We see it in Acts. Remember in the book of Acts when they're debating on how to take care of the widows, and that's why the diaconate was formed with Stephen and the others? Those churches had a program, the churches he's writing to. So the problem for them is that their solution is just, we're going to do this kind of a handout for these poor people, these people that are to be pitied. And yet, that's not what James is happy with. James says, actually, true religion is to visit them in their affliction. And then he translates to chapter 2, verse 1. He doesn't do that, by the way. That's added later. He just wrote the next sentence. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What's he doing? He's saying, look, you may have a program that helps the widows and the orphans, and that's really, really important, and that's very good. But if it's not coming through your actual understanding of your liberation, your, the way the gospel has freed you, the law of liberty, then it's going to become completely useless, especially in his area. He says in the area of partiality. And so what he's identified is a huge problem in that world that I think exists today. And that is this. We, we treat people on the basis of outward things, right? Isn't that kind of something we've been talking about in the news? I mean, we talk about racism is at a, the, the attention paid toward racism is at an all-time high. And, and what is at the root of racism? It's, it's looking at a person and judging them on the basis of a race, of an outward sign of, of their skin color, of their origins, and not on who they actually are. And that, that's something that we see all the way back in the, in, in the, at the Tower of Babel, but it's in us as humans. Why? Because we, in our sin tend toward wanting to be around people that make us feel better about ourselves. We become cliquish, and we become junior high over and over again. In, in, chapter, or in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul, or Paul, James says, make no distinction. So my question to you is this. As you think about partiality, and as you think about even this matter of race, what's your solution to the problem? One of the things I'm the most concerned by in this era as we deal with this real significant problem in our world is it's become popular. I remember on Martin Luther King Day, I believe I don't know if it's a new quote or an old quote, but his daughter released a quote, and she said something to the effect of, he was hated. And yet right now, people are choosing this movement because it's cool. And I'm just concerned by that because I think the point is where, where are we moving into places where we risk being hated for righteousness' sake? What solutions are you really after? If you think, and I think, we can come up with some, some tangible physical solutions to this real heart problem, 
we're, we're mistaken. It's going to take the law of liberty to set us free, to even know the true solution, and then seek the true solution. And the true solution is this, to evaluate people as you want to be evaluated. How do you want to be evaluated? I want to be evaluated by the blood of Christ. Anything outside of that that I look to myself for is folly. I will fail. And I think a really great example, a really great litmus test is this. Are you angry? Are you hateful? Are you mad? Um, A lot of anger comes out today in our attempts to fix problems. And I think the devil laughs. I think he loves it. We think it's such a big deal to be solving a justice issue, which it is, but we can do it so often with the very DNA that created the issue to begin with, which is hate. Anytime you evaluate another person, another group, are we not committing partiality? And so as we come to what James is teaching, just I want to begin by saying liberty means we seek the true solution, which is to remove the hatred. But secondly, and this is a continuation really, is that when you are liberated, you also see the actual problem, the real problem, right? The real problem that's going on with partiality is far deeper than a person's finances or religion or race or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's something far deeper going on when we show partiality. And that's what James is saying. One of the things that we, we've, I'm mentioning here is that when James says you need to, based on the law of liberty, seek the real problem, he's dumbfounded by this actual problem in this passage, which is the, the lifting up of somebody with money to one status and to take someone who seemingly has no money and lower them. He, he can't believe it because he says to himself as he's looking, he's like, that's the absolute opposite of what happened to you in your liberation. And let's look at where he says that. Um, by the way, just to kind of fill you in if you haven't been taken, the, the sin pattern that permeates the entire letter of James is the sin pattern of double-mindedness. It's almost like schizophrenia. It, it, it's, just, it's just fragmented. It's absolute rubbish to say, oh, I believe this, and then act like I believe this. He also uses the word over and over, self-deceit. And what he's saying in this passage is that he gives us this example from this illustration of poverty and wealth to show how that would play out. And so I'm going to ask you, this is a quiz. You're going to just answer this in your mind. Here it goes. I'm going to paraphrase the example, and you're going you're to have to just, in your brain, tell me if I'm getting close to what's being taught. Here's the paraphrase. Yes, they are to take care of the orphans and the widows, but James wants to go a little further. What he really wants the church to do is to make sure that the rich and the poor are treated the same. How am I doing? This is the key. Self-deception. We don't even hear the scripture correctly sometimes. See, James isn't saying what I just said. You know what James is saying? A, if you know the liberty you've received, you're going to fall in love with poor people. Oh, and by the way, if you know the liberty you received, you're going to be really irritated with rich people. Now, if you have a lot of money and you're listening to this, I'm not talking about an actual person with money 
we're talking about the idea of using wealth to move yourself forward, okay? But let's just look at the verses. Number one, verse six, letter A, or the first part of letters of verse six. You have dishonored the poor man. What's he saying there? He's saying by showing a distinction, you didn't just treat him poorly, you've dishonored him. The argument is, based on the image of God, all human beings are made in the image of God, by treating him less, you've actually lowered him. You didn't just not treat him like the rich guy, you've actually dishonored him. So that's sort of the intro to that thought. But listen to what he says right after that in the last, second part of verse six. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? What's he saying? What kind of self-deception are we living in when we lift people up in our minds or by our attitudes who, in a way, that class of people would drag us right into court and sue us? It reminds me of one of my favorite Psalms, 73, where Asaph says, I mean, God is good to Israel, but man, my feet had almost stumbled because I was envious of the arrogant. And then he gives this kind of description of all these qualities of the people he's defining. And, and again, it may be individual people he knows, or it may just be a sort of a, a classification. But what he's getting at is envy. Why did I envy them? And then he says, I went into the sanctuary. I worshiped. And that's where God opened my eyes and I saw truth. This deception was lifted. And here's the point. The people that you and I tend to envy are people who would be glad to just crush you. Like, does that make sense? Now, I'm not talking about the individual. I'm talking about the system. Like, like if I, like, take the popularity as the concept. If I want to be popular, and that becomes the thing I want desperately, so I begin to love the popular crowd. I'm going back to junior high. That's going to create a weight on me. That's going to end up crushing me. So it's not like just treat them fine and treat the poor better. It's saying quit envying people on these outward things. There was a book years ago called Hurt by a guy named Chap Clark. He was a youth leader, and this book was pretty much groundbreaking. I think he had spent time in the school system as a, a, a um, substitute teacher and began interviewing students, and, and they were anonymously inside the book. But he really was gravitating toward the kids that seemed to kind of have it all together. And as he got to know them and interviewed them, he found out, and he started getting quotes from them, how horrible, like how horrible their inner worlds felt. They, they would confess to him, like, I'm dying inside. And they would say, it's because I got, now that I'm in this crowd, I've got to like keep it up. I've got to act a certain way. I've got to kind of keep up the image. I've got to, I've got to, and do you hear the prison that is being concocted for us when we envy any area of life that we either want to get into or we already see ourselves as being there. And so the point of this idea is that this liberation is that, that James is re reminding us of is you have been set free from that mind mentality. So why do we do it? How have we been set free? So I'm going to remind you, if you weren't here last week, of this illustration he gives in the mirror. In verses 22 to 25, he says, listen, to be a doer of the word is to be like a man who goes, well, to not be a doer of the word, sorry. To be someone who listens to your Bible, reads your Bible, and then you go away and you don't do the things God tells you to do, I'm using very elementary language, is like a man, he says, who looks in a mirror 
and looks intently at that mirror, obviously has something wrong, because when he goes away into the world, whatever that looks like, something happens, like, hey, you got a little piece of food, or you missed a spot shaving, or whatever it is. And he's like, now, that's, that's crazy, right? That's absurd. Like, if you told me, hey, you missed a spot shaving, and I said, I know, I looked intently in the mirror, thank you. It's just absurd. Like, I obviously didn't look in the mirror. I, I, my eyes were glazed over, I was thinking about something else, and I looked and went on. That's what he's saying you're doing. If we go to the passage of Scripture, any of the Bible, especially the law of liberty, which says what? What does the law of liberty teach? You are broken apart from Jesus. You were born into sin. David says in Psalm 51, in sin my mother conceived me. I mean, there's not like this bright spot on your own, apart from God. This isn't to be self-deprecating. It's to be honest. It's to say, like, there's a blemish, and guess what? Jesus is going to rescue you and has rescued you. Uh, have you ever been, like, in an organ? I've, I'm older than a lot of you, but I've been in the, you get into, like, a company, you've been there for a while, and they start telling you about the benefits. Like, did you all know we have a matching program? or a four? Have you all heard these things? And you're like, oh, I should probably do that. Anyone with me on that? Because I'm, like, the worst about that. That's like the gospel. It's like, we have some benefits. Are you ready to use them? Like, there's some real benefits that you guys aren't taking advantage of if you're a Christian. You can look in the law, the scripture, bring the stuff that's plaguing you, and pray to the implanted word, Jesus, and say, Lord, I need rescue, and he will do it. Because he's already done it legally. So we get to actually come to him. The beautiful thing is, if you have a blemish, he'll tell you how to take it off. You follow me. He will show you the freedom. And how does that work? That's what we're going to end with as we move into our last point. Where does the real power come from of the, of the liberation? Um, in our passage, we've been using this word law. And, and, and I just want you to know the word law is tricky. I think James is using it primarily to this audience who probably think they keep it. I mean, that's the thing. They probably think, you know, I keep the Ten Commandments. And so that's why James says, great, you think you keep it, but if you, maybe you keep the non-adultery part, but do you keep the non-murder part? Now, do you think anyone thought, oh, you got me. I do murder from time to time. Uh, My bad. Is that part of the deal? Remember, he is very much like Jesus, who in the Sermon on the Mount says, you've heard it said, do not murder, I say, don't call your brother a fool. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, don't lust. Like, Jesus is saying, I came to fulfill this law. This law is so much bigger than you've ever dreamed. In chapter 4, James will say, what causes fights and quarrels? What's the answer? Most people will say, you know, as a parent, I'm refereeing fights all the time. But there's never been one moment where my child said this. Well, you see, Dad, I did not have, so I murdered They always say what? That person deserved it. They said that. If you just saw what happened. James is like, no, no, no. Listen, you do not have something. Something's been taken. Envy. You feel envious. And you go after the person. And it may not look like murder, but that's exactly what it is. And so the royal law, James says, is what? And this is what I love about James. An A negative view of the law, not the right view, the A negative or wrong view of the law, 
is just restriction. We talked about this a few weeks ago. I used the illustration of driving um, down the road. If I just said, what's the laws about driving? And you said speed limit. Well, there's a whole lot of laws about, you know, like not sitting in the right lane to turn right when, you know, or to go straight when someone wants to turn right. There's all sorts of ways to love your neighbor in driving. That was an illustration from another day. This is the time I want to talk about the royal law. What is the royal law? Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love. There's this word that breaks in to the Bible that changes everything. Love. Like, what would it look like to love my neighbor? Hmm? And how does the royal law fulfill that? I was interacting with somebody about uh, a recent political event, and this person simply said, and I've heard this a few times, I think Jesus would probably do what he did in the temple with these people. Have you heard anyone say that? You know, he turned over the money tables and he pulls out a whip. Have you heard anybody use that language? And that's what I think he would do. And my actual thought was this. First of all, let me give you the theological insight to what happened in the temple. Uh, That is a Gentile court because God loves the outsider, the alien. And during the Passover, that was to be available for the Gentiles. And yet these people had gone over there and set up tables to sell the the animals for the sacrifices because people were going to bring their own from far away. It was a money-making opportunity. And he's fulfilling a prophecy. It's almost like an act of apocalyptic, prophetic, like God is on the scene and he's opening up the gospel to the Gentiles. That's what's happening when Jesus does that on his visits to Jerusalem. I think three different times. If Jesus went around whipping his enemies, I would be the first. Wouldn't you? He's going to pull his whip out and hit you. What kind of a gospel message are we presenting to people if we think Jesus is going to go around when someone's crossed the line so far and he's going to walk up and just start hitting them with a whip? What is the gospel? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to come and receive your whips. Jesus loves you and took the whips. And if that's true, and you receive that truth, the only thing that can actually happen, it's like, it's almost like physics, is you will then turn and love other people. So when the Bible says things like, James, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. He's not saying, if you want to have the love of God, go show it first. He's saying the evidence of God's love to you through his son, the royal law being fulfilled in Jesus, his son coming into you, and that mercy coming into your body, into your system, into your life, is you will turn and naturally go show other people's love. So when you're not, what do you do? You confess it. What I don't love. Show me what part I'm not understanding of your royal law. Open my eyes, dear Jesus. Show me your mirror. There's another place where there's an absurd example. The mirror is one. It's the parable of the rich fool. And in that parable, Jesus tells a story of a, of a man 
who owes, I want to use like Warren Buffett money. Like he owes, it's like if you do the math, it's just over the top, okay? And he's going to lose his family, and there's just no hope. What's, what's, what's absurd or ridiculous about that parable is that man is like, I can do it. I can pay you back to the king. And the king's like, I'm going to have pity on you. You're forgiven. Debts are gone. And the guy goes out, and you know the story. He begins demanding like dollars. You know, you owe me five bucks. I'm going to send you to jail. Now, that's an absurd. Jesus uses that example to say nobody would ever do that. When the royal law has come on you, that God loves you, his son has rescued you, he took the lashes for you, you are now in his good standing, he delights in you. When that comes into your soul, there is no alternative but to go and love those that are poor in spirit and brokenness and need and anything because we relate to them. You don't look at someone that's different and go, oh, that poor person. You think, that's me. In fact, I even am worse. And then you move toward their affliction. So the question is, where are you showing partiality and how are you doing it? I have no idea what my time is on. That thing went off. Anyone want to tell me? I've got three minutes to go to conclusion. Um, here's the conclusion. One, Worship. Uh, I loved Psalm 27. We use it in our call to worship. I love it still. I didn't mean to say that past tense. Um, David is, yet yeah, he has affliction. He has enemies. He has all this stuff going on. But he says, I long to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. So part of what happens in response to the reception of Jesus' love is worship. There's something about the, the way our bodies respond in worship. It's very hard to be cranky at the same time and say mean things to people when you're worshiping your God and Savior. Now later, we're gonna see James say it. People do it. They'll honor God with their lips and then they'll curse their neighbor. But he says it shouldn't be so because there's one source and that source is the Spirit. Practically speaking, what can you do? I'm gonna give you an assignment and I really want you to do this. Is anyone gonna do it? I want you to get 10 three by five cards. You can do it on a sheet if you just wanna do sheets. And make two columns. Who are five people, and then this is really hard, so you can't show anybody, that you really don't like? Just, I don't like this person. Just, it's amazing how quickly your brain just filled those five in, by the way. But do it. Be ruthless. And then go to the Lord and say, Lord Jesus, the reason I don't like these people is because I don't trust you. Love me on the basis of your son. And they've done something that makes me feel less than what you tell me I am. Lord, will you give me a love for these five people? Will you change my heart? Even though they don't deserve it, even though I may, I may never talk to them again. Maybe they don't even live anymore. Maybe it's someone from the past that's passed away that's just a voice in your head. But Lord, will you give me a heart of love and forgiveness for these five people? One by one by one. Assignment two. Second list, who are the five people you really desperately want to like you? They're just awesome, and I really wish they liked me. Lord Jesus, will you help me see that that's a prison, that they liking me will not change one thing. In fact, what it means is I'm not resting in your love for me. If we can begin to do that with that assignment, I promise you what will happen is you'll begin to notice 
in your daily life when you overlike somebody, partiality, and you underlike somebody, partiality, right? That's how change happens. That's what James has been saying from the very beginning. Joyful, joyful, joyful go into these hard places and you're enjoying, why? It's like, it's like fun. It's like artistry. You're becoming a poet of doing the law because it's something you get to do. You get to go to broken places in your own heart and say, Jesus, thank you that you want to fix me and fix this. Praise Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you are very serious about us loving each other, and we are very bad at that. Thank you for the law of liberty. Jesus, thank you that you fulfilled that law and then sent your spirit into our hearts to put the law, the royal law, into our soul, that we would love our neighbor, that we would love you. And Lord, help us to become comfortable seeing our brokenness, not relishing in it, Lord. Teach us to hate it, but teach us also to not look in the mirror and glaze over it, but to look in the mirror Name the places where we still struggle and bring those to you because you promise that you will bring us the wisdom and the mercy and the glory to fix our broken places. Teach us to grow more and more like you. Amen.